So if you wouldn't mind, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, which is page 809 in your pew Bibles. And when you're there, please read with me, starting in verse 1 through verse 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, our focus this evening will be on the fifth beatitude. and In our brief time together, we will look at the immense topic of God's mercy. Jesus' declaration here in this beatitude is it's pretty straightforward. The idea of blessedness that you see repeated over and over again in the Beatitudes. The Greek word makaroi, which literally means happy or fortunate, are those who are the merciful ones. To be happy by the world's standard is to be happy based off circumstance, around whatever is going on in your life at that moment. But what Jesus is talking about here is settled internal happiness and not dependent on outside happenings or circumstances or the promotion that you didn't get. Do you have true happiness in you? Are you reconciled with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, to be happy in the way that the Beatitudes say to be happy is to be born again. Every one of the Beatitudes that you've seen and that we just read through are experienced by the children of God and rightly called the birthmarks of being born again. Tonight I'd like to answer three questions about this verse. One, what is mercy? What is mercy? Two, where does this mercy come from? Three, who are the merciful? And how do they inherit mercy at the judgment? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your tender mercies. Lord, when we were aliens and strangers to you, you forgave us. And through your Son have now made us sons and daughters. When we were enemies, you sent your son to die for our sins. Forgive us for often forgetting the great gift and riches that we have in Christ. We are a needy and forgetful people. Be pleased, O oh Lord, for your name's sake to glorify your name by your word. I ask that 
you would increase and that I would decrease, that the people who belong to you, those here who have been bought by your precious blood, would hear and see you in your word tonight. We thank you that we come with nothing worthy in ourselves, save the shed blood of Christ, where all things good are ours, even when life is too painful to see it. Your mercy, O oh Lord, is awesome. And I pray that your word here would not return void, but that the Holy Spirit would take aim and let the arrows fly to where you would have them land. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, first question, what is mercy? Mercy is one of those biblical terms that everyone seems to use, but few can define. Just a couple evenings ago, um, and he's not going to like this because he's here, my son, um, who's really young, had been having a rough day and he found that he was punished. Um, not long after, I went up to his room to talk to him to see how he was doing. I asked him if he knew why he was punished, and he kind of like mumbled something I think was a yes. But when I asked him, do you know what mercy is? Without hesitation, he said, yeah, mercy is when you don't get something bad that you really deserve. And that's not so bad for an elementary school kid, definition-wise. Um, so I was impressed. I was very proud of him. But let me try to give you a more full definition. And, and I really wanted to be careful with these words, so I want to call your attention to this definition. So I'd ask you, think about these words. Mercy is a holy compassion of soul. Mercy is a holy compassion of soul, not just a natural comp compassion, whereby a person is moved to pity, to relieve another person who is in misery. Let me read that again. Mercy is a holy compassion of soul, whereby a person is moved to pity, to relieve another person who is in misery. When I am merciful, I rejoice with those who rejoice, and I weep with those who weep. When I am merciful, I bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. You see, mercy is a holy temperament. It's not a carnal or self-righteous imposter. The world may call many things mercy, advocating or protesting for a number of social issues. But if those are not, not in line with God's justice and, and the justice of God found in his word, it's not true mercy according to God. You see, as we see in Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth meet have, or have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. So the mercy of the world is not the mercy Jesus is talking about. Godly mercy is consistent with God's decrees and his justice. In other words, God's mercy never contradicts his just decrees. Mercy is not only a holy disposition, but it's an active one. It must be put into practice. The merciful man is one who is known by the evidence that he is merciful. It impacts not only his mind and his heart, but also his actions and his wallet. 
John says in 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in action and in truth. If I think of when Moses was wronged by Miriam and Aaron in Numbers 12 for marrying a Cushite woman, what did Moses do? Did he defend himself and say to Miriam, I am the chosen of God to intercede between God and the people of Israel? Not a word came out of his mouth. He was meek and he rested in God who was his defender. And what did God do? He struck Miriam with leprosy. And then what was Moses' response? But to show mercy. By interceding for her that God would heal her. And he did. Holy compassion is often choked in the life of the believer because we have forgotten the mercy that we have received. Oh, saint, is that you today? Have you forgotten or become numb to how much you have been forgiven? Mercy is not natural to this world. So I I plead with you, Search your own hearts. Repent. Fight against any lack of genuine mercy. This character of trait should be the norm for true believers, that we should be known for being merciful. Question number two, where does this mercy come from? It doesn't certainly come from me. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from the world. It comes from God. He is the source of all mercy. And I would, I would contend that a believer learns this by seeing and experiencing in his own walk with Christ the beautiful character of the Lord at work in his or her own life. God, who would be completely just to punish you and I and not be in any way wrong for doing so, decides because of his nature to be merciful to us. All mercy comes from God, whom is its overflowing source. Micah 7.18 says that he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Another example would be the life of Jesus. He was called the friend of publicans or tax collectors and sinners. Here is a holy God being called the friend of sinners and tax collectors? Why? Why? Why were they attracted to him if it was not for his mercy? They knew their sin. They knew it all too well, but they also felt his mercy. God's mercy for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, saint, let me remind you, pities you in your misery. It gives you compassion from God in your darkest moments. God comforts you with his mercy in your trials. It counsels you in your confusion. And it pardons ultimately all of your sin. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort. 
He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are also in affliction. Here to say that God is the Father of mercies is to say that it is his natural disposition. Listen here. It is his natural disposition to show mercy to his needful, sinful, and forgetful people. Every mercy displayed by his creatures has first been placed in, his, in their hearts by him. God's natural work is being merciful. It is his strange work to be exercising punishment and vengeance and wrath. Do you understand that? That God doesn't take pleasure in wrath against the sinner, but that rather he delights to show mercy? Thomas Watson says it this way, that mercy is his darling attribute, which he most delights in. The bee that naturally gives honey, yet stings only when it's provoked. God doth not punish till he can bear no longer. Spurgeon described it this way, that when mercy cometh into the world, she drives wings, or I'm sorry, winged horses with the axles of her chariot wheels hot with fire. But when wrath comes, it walketh with tardy footsteps. God's rod of mercy is ever extended outward to you, and yet God's sword of justice is in his scabbard. No, it's not rusted in the scabbard. It can be easily withdrawn, but it's held there. For God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23 Do you see the beauty of God? The God that you serve. The God that died for you while you were still an enemy of Christ. You know, I look at this and I think of the word hesed. I don't know if you've ever heard this word. It's a Hebrew word. It's a very important word in the Old Testament. And it's the word for God's covenantal love towards his people. Nehemiah 9 is a good picture of this. And I should say that the word hesed was overwhelmingly translated mercy in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament that Jesus would probably have read in some way. But let me just run you through what Nehemiah says very quickly, and Nehemiah 9 is a good picture of this. Nehemiah recounts the many blessings of the covenant that Israel received, that God chose Abraham, that God gave Abraham the covenant that would make him a great nation, that God saw the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt, that he parted the waters of the Red Sea, that he rescued them from Pharaoh, that he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and that he gave them bread from heaven and water from the rock. Yet, they rebelled against him. They provoked him to anger. Yet, God remained faithful because that is who he is. Let me just read to you verses um, 17 and 18 and 19 out of Nehemiah 9 that follow just what I said. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, Look, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. That is an amazing 
merciful God. So that leads naturally to the last question I have. Who are the merciful? And how do they inherit mercy at the judgment? Answer, the merciful are those who have the spiritual eyes to see their poverty spiritually. They have a new heart that grieves over their sin and have been humbled by their utter helplessness and need for God's mercy. We can look to our immediate text to get the answer to this question, and I want to provide the ground for you to see in Scripture why I answered it that way. The Beatitudes are descriptive of what the life of the Christian is like. It's not a prescription of how you were to live to obtain mercy, but rather a explanation or a, a description that describes God's people and the fruits that are in God's people's lives that show them to be truly blessed. It is characteristic of those who have mercy as a result of being indwelt by the living God. Yet that's not all. We also see in the Beatitudes not only this description, but we also see the progression of the saved soul. There is a beautiful continuity and harmony of the order of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin with four descriptive phrases or verses of blessed brokenness. So the first four teach on the initial graces, but continue all throughout the Christian life. And the last four teach us about the fruits that are evident in the Christian life. Let's just walk through those quickly together. The first one is, as you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a man who recognizes that he is poor in spirit. He recognizes that his righteousness is like filthy rags. And he's a beggar spiritually before God. When before he was confident in his attainments, God has yet stripped away all dependence on his righteousness of himself, of trusting in himself. We see here that spiritual life begins with emptiness of self-righteousness. Next, we see the same man being humbled at the sight of his sin. He learns to submit to the righteous judgment of God, and he becomes meek. He understands that he is justly condemned before God. And, and as the second beatitude also says, that when he sees that he is bankrupt in his self and by his own merits, he mourns for his sin. He's filled with grief over his sins. Dear saints, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Fourth, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we see a turning point in the Beatitudes that growing out of that emptiness, that mourning, that meekness, and that humility, this man begins to hunger and to thirst, to cry out to God for righteousness and the righteousness of Christ so that the man who was emptied is now filled. And now we come to our text. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The same man that we've been describing now being filled and satisfied with the righteousness of Christ by God's mercy, he cannot but help but manifest to his fellow man what he has experienced himself. God gives mercy to the sinner, and that mercy spills over onto other people. So what am I saying? 
if you want to be a merciful person, you must be a broken person. You need to grieve over your sin and still feel its offense to God. You need to feel a sense of meek readiness for God to act on your behalf in his timing and wait on God to fill, I'm sorry, and wait on God for the mercy to fill us with his righteousness. Dear friend, is this true of you? Have you ever tasted the sweet mercy of God? Can you remember a time when mercy first met you in your brokenness over your sin? If not, I pray that you would feel and know that a real and heavy burden remains on your back. I pray that you would recognize your true spiritual poverty and mourn over your sin and humble yourself before God, crying out to him for his righteousness and his mercy mercy to fill you. For those of you who do know Christ and who have tasted his mercy, do you now take it for granted? Have you forgotten or become callous to his tender mercies and his patient forbearance with you? If that is you, which it is me, I plead with you to repent, as I have when I had to prepare this sermon. May we be authentically merciful in a way that spills over to other people's lives. Really quickly, I want to continue to ask an obvious question to this particular verse that I think is natural at this point. Why are only the merciful going to obtain mercy at the judgment? Is this a works-based salvation? Do you earn mercy by being merciful now? Not at all. It's a contradiction of terms. If you earn it, it is no longer a gift that glorifies God. Mercy by, is, mercy by nature is never earned. It is freely given. John Piper gives a great analogy of this, and let me paint the picture here. Someday you will stand before God to give an account of your life. And he will ask to see your life record of mercy. And it won't be a long business ledger that you pull out of your coat pocket showing gloriously all of your acts of mercy where you call God to account of this verse and say, God, you owe me mercy now. That's not how it's going to go. I'm sorry if that disappoints anybody. (laughs) But rather, praise God, as you stand before him, what you will do is pull out of your, your other coat pocket your soul's medical charts and you will hand them over to him, and in it he will see the proof of your own healing, how you have trusted your great physician to use the medicine of his word and the therapy of his spirit to change your heart and see the outpouring of mercy, of his, I'm sorry, his outpouring of mercy in you. He will see that he has begun and finished the work in your life to become healed from the disease of unmercifulness. In in closing, let me give you a few thoughts on application. If we want to be a merciful people, we will be moved with compassion for the souls of others. A merciful person cannot but help have a missionary and evangelistic heart and bleed with sorrow when people are given to idolatry and serious doctrinal error. A merciful man is persuaded that the whole world is lost and is under the sway of the devil. Yet they have a soul of immense value. Mark 8.37 says, For what does it profit a man that he should gain the whole world and let lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? 
A merciful person will see the heart of Christ in loving the lost. And I love this quote from John Bunyan. He says, to see a prince entreat a beggar to receive alms would be a strange sight indeed. To see a king beg the traitor to accept mercy would be even stranger, wouldn't it? But to see God entreat a sinner, to hear Christ say, I stand at the door and knock, with a heart full and a heaven full of grace to bestow upon him that opens, this is such a sight that dazzles the very angel's eyes. What sayest thou now, sinner? Is not this rich in mercy, this God rich in mercy? Has not this God great love for sinners? I ask, is your heart stirred by those around you? A merciful person will not turn, I'm sorry, my second point, and last conclusion. A merciful person will not turn a cold heart to the suffering of others. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. My heart is so bent on being hard towards other people that when I have a question of whether I should try to be merciful to somebody, I want my default to be generosity. God in a thousand of ways shows himself daily to be merciful to us when we show mercy to others. How many times have you heard of someone being extended mercy in a way that was hard for them to sacrifice, only to hear that God provided for them later. I feel that having mercy should be something that should come natural as a believer, but it doesn't all the time. It's hard. I pray that we would trust in Christ to give us that fruit in more and more greater measure. For we have been forgiven much. I'm going to leave you with one thought as you think about this idea of mercy. Keep in mind that you have treated God much worse than you deserve to be treated by him. Ponder and let it sink in that you don't deserve better than you got from God. Let me say that again. Ponder and let it sink in that you don't deserve better than you got from God. And the second thing I would say is ponder and let it sink in and embrace how much you were receiving from God, how much you have been forgiven, and at what cost. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you that there is a way to obey this command that is glorifying to you. And it is not by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying really hard to be merciful. But rather, Lord, in Christ we have the ability, through the obedience of faith, to participate in the mercy that Christ displayed while he was here on this earth. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God and that justice is not the end of the story alone for us, but Lord, your mercy has triumphed over judgment. 
Jesus' name we pray, amen.